from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, this is The Porch. I'm Matt Bush, and thank you for joining us. Two years ago this month, we were just coming to grips with what COVID-19 was, much less the trauma it was beginning to inflict on all of us. We begin this hour by going back to March 2020. PPR's Lily Kinep will be our guide by going back to our audio files from that month. One of the most telling changes from 2020 at BPR is in my files. When the pandemic began, I made a folder entitled Coronavirus 3 2020. That folder grew and grew until COVID-19 coverage became a part of our daily workflow. Let's look back at some of those moments, starting with the rumors about one of the first positive cases in the region. Macon County Health Department spokesperson Emily Ritter explains. I would just remind people that if they also tested positive for this respiratory disease, would they want people knocking down their doors and telling them to leave? This person has followed their isolation orders very well. We're in constant contact with them. They have had limited contacts throughout Macon County. But Highlands Mayor Patrick Taylor grudgingly confirms the person is in Highlands. I've heard that rumor. I will not deny that. A person from New York, now isolating in Macon County after visiting Asheville, was confirmed to be the first coronavirus case in western North Carolina on Monday. Schools in Cherokee, Clay, Swain, Graham, Macon, Jackson, and Haywood counties all announced meals for students will be available for pickup this week, with some starting as early as tomorrow. Dr. Chris Baldwin is superintendent of Macon County Schools. He says this doesn't change their plans. For the past month or so, we knew that it was inevitable that a case was going to be confirmed in Macon County. You know, it was a matter of when, not if. We'll deal with it as best we can. Dale Wiggins is the chair of the Graham County Board of Commissioners. You know, in reality, I hope we're overreacting. The county announced it will close all hotels and accommodations, as well as limiting traffic. Only Graham County residents will be allowed to drive on U.S. Highway 129 and NC-28. Wiggins says concerns about treating the virus are the leading cause. The lack of medical facilities to treat someone with the coronavirus, we, we don't have anything here in county to treat people. The Graham County Health Department is testing for coronavirus, but the closest hospital is over 40 minutes away in Bryson City. Wiggins says that right now they cannot spare the county's two ambulances for a motorcycle wreck. We have to respond to a lot of motorcycle wrecks in this county. We have the highest motorcycle fatality rate in the state of North Carolina. Wiggins adds four COVID-19 cases originating in neighboring Cherokee County also played a factor in the decision to increase restrictions. That just makes it a little bit more real when your neighbors are having to deal with it. On Tuesday, other locations such as hair and nail salons, video gaming centers, and all public parks will close at noon. Every morning for about the last two weeks, Mayor James Reed of Andrews goes live on Facebook with updates for town residents. Good morning, Andrews. Hope everybody had a good night's rest last night. This week, Reed has had a lot of updates. He announced that only locals, those from Cherokee, Graham, and Macon counties, would be allowed inside the city limits. 
He spent the week working out the kinks of this plan. We're just trying to protect all of our citizens in Andrews. Reed says he's gotten mostly positive reactions to his caution, but he's gotten a few angry residents who have called into question the constitutionality of the move, and it's gotten personal. He said there's no need for you to respond. I'm done with you pretty much as a friend, and this is a 40-year friend. Norma Hudson is a legal expert at UNC School of Government who specializes in laws pertaining to declarations of a state of emergency. Local governments don't literally close their borders. What cities and counties do have the legal authority to do is limit ingress and egress into the emergency area. The emergency area, Hudson says, can be a whole town or county. There must be some credible evidence that the local government can point to that demonstrates that the restriction that is imposed is reasonably necessary in order to address the threat. For Mayor Reed, the rising number of COVID-19 cases in Cherokee County, many of which originated from out-of-state people, are reason enough to restrict Andrews for now. Jackson County's homeless program, which puts people in need of shelter in hotels, planned to scale down after cold weather ended at the start of April. But the spread of COVID-19 has increased the need for shelter, says HERE founding member Destry Legere. HERE stands for Housing, Equity, Resources, and Education. The COVID-19 response, the thought process behind it is not just to provide safety for that person, but it's also because it provides community safety and it avoids additional health risks. Right now, there are over 35 people being housed. The new Gadua Academy started in 2004 to teach a new generation of fluent Cherokee speakers. Like other schools, the pandemic caused educators to go to virtual instruction. I did not anticipate that we would still be remote this far into the school year. That's Crystal Carpenter. She's principal of the elementary school department at the new Gadua Academy. Students have been learning virtually since March. There are fewer than 200 fluent speakers left in the eastern band of Cherokee Indians. My Cherokee name is Ione Goldstein. That's Irene Smoker-Jackson. She's a fluent speaker in the elementary Cherokee language specialist at Kadua. She's worked at the school for 13 years, translating lessons into Cherokee. Internet's hard to come by where I live. Since the pandemic... Smoker Jackson has mainly been sending audio messages back and forth with teachers to translate words. You're always translating, you know, translating all the time. It's just like translating 24 hours a day. It's just like one word could translate. It could take you a couple hours, you know. You can't just throw it out there just like an English word. Smoker Jackson grew up in a home where her parents spoke only Cherokee. She's always called her mother for help with translation. But in October, her mother passed away due to COVID-19 at the age of 91. She left a lot of memory with me and a lot of, a lot of words with me that's in my heart that I can still carry on. Her mother was one of the last people in the Snowbird community who only spoke Cherokee. She contracted COVID after being sent home from hospice. They realized that my mother had it really bad. Her lungs was already filling up with the mucus and fluid was building up. So she lasted two days there. For Smoker Jackson, COVID-19 has only strengthened her resolve and passion to preserve the Cherokee language. The language is dying out because it, it's taken out our elders, our speakers. That is why it is important that 
we continue with the schooling and we continue embedded in, in the kids that we have now. The New Gadoo Academy hopes to start some in-person classes again on January 11th after waiting to see whether there's another surge of COVID-19 cases after Christmas, like what was seen after Thanksgiving. On May 9th, Professor Lori Horowitz, head of the English department, said goodbye to her students. I have the pomp and circumstance theme music. (laughs) Do you hear that? Just a few weeks earlier, Horowitz's creative nonfiction class invited BPR to join its final session. The last six weeks of the class were hosted via Zoom. Many students left campus to go to their parents' homes, while a few stayed in off-campus apartments around Asheville. Each class, the students were given a prompt and then wrote a response in about five minutes. After we got on Zoom and remote learning, I decided to do pandemic prompts that would lead them to places to think about the present moment. Senior Nathaniel Marshall shared his response. In five years, when I look back on quarantine, I'll laugh at the tree that swayed and creaked outside my bedroom, the one that in daydreams fell on my room at the most helpless of times. The trunk would snap as relationships ended on sour notes over the phone. The canopy drooped as I sobbed in the pillow, heaving and socially distant. In five years, I'll wonder if that trunk still hadn't snapped or if the roots kept hold of the ground. Marshall was one of just three seniors in the class. He says this season of life isn't working out as he expected. There's a lot of transition going on. It feels weird. I'm like, my lease is up and I have to, I have to find a new place with, with no income now and I got to find a job. It's just kind of a mess. Senior Sarah Lukendor was in Davidson during the class. She says she's lucky to already have a remote job. You know, if I had to move somewhere for a job or that kind of thing, that would be very stressful for me right now. Years later, BPR checked in with Sarah Lucander about what post-grad life is like. I mean, it, it definitely feels like a blur. It does not feel like two years has gone by at all. And when things were, you know, shut down and we had to go home a couple years ago, it was just so sudden. Are you still at your parents' house in Davidson? Is that them in the background? I, yes. Yep, that was my mom. <laughs> I kind of got into the hang of... Um, continuing with my remote job um, that I'd had, you know, prior. And, um, and then I, you know, have grown into my role with my company throughout the past couple of years. I am an HR um, assistant. I work um, directly below the COO of the medical company called Superior Medical Experts. I am still writing a lot of music, playing, but I think the one thing that I miss is that I used to, you know, get out more and they would have more live things to do. And in in many ways, because of the pandemic, different live music venues have, you know, ebbed and flowed, which, which has been hard for me to enjoy, so... And even though I'm very happy with what I do um, with my job, you know, my ultimate um, goal is to be a singer-songwriter. 
And I had envisioned myself, you know, moving to Nashville, which is certainly still on my to-do list. Um, but just with all of the, you know, craziness that has gone on, I guess I, it, it just seemed like too much to make a big move in not knowing, you know, what all might happen. Now I have less of a fear of the coronavirus, but I think for a very long time, like they've had all these different strains and just fearing what could happen to my parents and that kind of stuff too. So after your writing class, you sent me a song you had written called Carolina Day. If it's the song I'm thinking it is, I actually, I'm sure I have a better recording of it now as well. Let's listen. When I look across the lake at the early morning fog, can't help but feel that I'm not alone. There in my kayak, no other man to be seen I'm looking up at Mama Mountain, she's looking down at me There are plenty of winding roads that are etched into her sides The beauty of the land below and the water she provides Silence is broken only by the cry of the wild turkey And the black bear walking by and through the pines, the wind whispers as it blows. Be in the moment and learn to let go. Drift away, drift away through the Carolina day. Drift away, drift away. That's one of my favorite songs I've written. I think that everyone in North Carolina, no matter where you are, you can still, you know, enjoy the beauty and the nature and the, the little things around your world, even with all of what's going on. My goal right out of college, I felt, you know, extremely hurried in reaching, you know, whatever goal I had at that time period and with what was going on in the pandemic, everything felt so uncertain. But now that I've had time to be forced to sit with myself and, and grow and write more, become a better writer, become a better musician, I've been writing and performing actually since I was 11 years old. I performed in a couple thousand people when I was 12 years old. I wrote the alma mater for my junior high school um, and perform that. So I've, I've never been shy, but I definitely have felt like over the past couple of years, my, um, my writing and my singing and my playing, I've just gotten more comfortable in, into that. So with all the craziness around, I've dug my stress and stuff into my, into my uh, music. And, and I think that's been a good thing for me. In the past couple of years, um, I mean, there's been a lot that has also gone on that I've not shared <laughs> with you and that we don't need to share on public radio. I've written several different like political songs that I really enjoy. And so I feel like in terms of learning hard to articulate 
some of the things that I feel and want to share with others and what's important um, that that has changed and grown. One of them is called The Land of the Free. What do you think when you see the red, white, and blue? Generations of families with different stories than you. Lives have been given for the sake of our own. What future do you want for the land you call home? What future do you want for the land you call home? You know, I was more unsure of myself. I was more the past couple of years. I also feel like I've just grown in different ways that has impacted my writing and what I'm writing about. I feel like I was very naive um, a couple of years ago in a lot of ways. I don't necessarily know how to describe it. I just kind of had the vision of, of the world and vision of people and, and how everyone interacts. And that has really been shaken over the past couple of years in different um different ways different relationships and friendships and things like that and so it's helped me to grow though as a person when i look across the lake at the early morning fog can't help but feel that i'm not alone there in my kayak no other man to be seen I'm looking up at Mama Mountain, she's looking down at me. There are plenty of winding roads that are etched into her sights. The beauty of the land below and the water she provides. Silence is broken only by the cry of the wild turkey and the black bears walking by. That was Sarah Lukander speaking with BPR's Lily Kinnep. Sarah graduated from UNC Asheville in 2020, shortly after Lily first talked with her as classes were being moved online because of something called COVID-19. Two years later, state health officials report 1,698 people in the 13 westernmost North Carolina counties that Blue Ridge Public Radio serves have died of COVID-19. Each loved and were loved. May we hold them, their families, their friends, and our communities up, and may all of us be light as year three of this pandemic begins. When I look across the sea, the sky's lit up in fire. Coming up after a short break, a BPR first. You're listening to The Porch. There on the shoreline, soft sand beneath my feet. Fingers are sticky from the juices of a peach. Welcome back to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. I'm Matt Bush, and for this episode of The Porch, we get to do something we've been waiting two years to do, and that is use all of our new technology. In February 2020, Bluebridge Public Radio was in the process of revamping its entire studio equipment. We had all that done, including a brand new talk studio where we were going to be able to do all of our podcasts out of, lots of recordings and all that, building out the other studios. It was going to greatly improve the way we could deliver and record our podcast to our public. Well, two years later, we're finally able to use that because COVID cases have come down to the point where we're able to have people in the studios again. So finally, two years later, we get to use the equipment we've been looking at 
and just waiting for the day to come. And that day has come. Joining me in studio now are Corey Valancourt, the Smoking Mountain News politics editor and a contributor to BPR, and Dr. Chris Cooper of Western Carolina University, our resident political scientist. Gentlemen, finally, we can do this. Glad to be here. Hey, Matt. So there's no shortage of things to talk about when it comes to Western North Carolina politics in March of 2022. And we're going to start with our Congressman Madison Cawthorn, who is now back in this area and is going to run for this seat. Lots of statements coming from him that really seems to be in the, been the case since uh, he was elected in November of 2020. Corey, try to bring us up to speed on what some of the latest things the Congressman has been saying that have been uh, causing or making headlines. Well, Matt. Uh, it's almost a full-time job just to keep up with the things that Representative Cawthorn says. Of course, we saw his comments on the Ukrainian president calling him a thug. He's been outspoken on the potential for conflict there, but closer to home, he's been garnering headlines with a series of traffic violations, and these kind of dovetail into the allegations of him bringing weapons onto school property, and it's just a a never-ending saga of what is he going to do next. And that has led to or one of the reasons it's led to a very large field that's going to be opposing him in the Republican primary, which is on May 17th, eight candidates, including Congressman Cawthorn, which, Chris, that's an awful large field for someone who is running for a second time. It it sure is. It's, you know, I get sick of the word unprecedented, but here I am using it once again. Um, We're just not used to seeing this, right? Incumbents should have, at the very least, an easy path to re-election in their primary. Um, But that's not what we're seeing here. I think Madison Cawthorn's flirtation, if you want to call it, uh, with our district to our east, I think produced a very, very large field. And what happened while he was gone was that a lot of the prominent Republicans in the district got behind one of the other candidates. For example, Chuck Edwards pulled, you know, endorsements from kind of a who's who list of Republicans of Western North Carolina, including folks like Jim Davis, who, you know, are generally well-respected in the party. So this is a race that should have been easy, and it's going to be real hard. And looking back at two years ago, we are you bring up Jim Davis's name, we're really only about a thousand GOP votes away from it being Congressman Jim Jim Davis, and we're in a completely different boat here in 2022, I would imagine. Um, But yeah, so we'll get to that now. Um, Eight candidates, 30% plus one is the number that someone has to hit in this primary for there to be no runoff. So let's talk about that, the likelihood of a primary. But first, we've been seeing a lot of reports of growing discontent within the GOP with Congressman Cawthorn. How real is that? My reporting over the last year has focused on the enduring power of former President Donald Trump. Is it high? Is it low? Uh, Back in maybe January, I had local leaders, including Michelle Woodhouse and Kay Miller of the Haywood County Republican Party, tell me, oh, 90% of Republicans are still behind Trump. Therefore, they're still behind Cawthorn. Uh, Then last summer, I saw Trump in uh, Greenville, where um, the, the... Maybe his influence had slipped just a little bit. Um, That was where he endorsed Ted Budd. And uh, most recently, I spoke with the lieutenant governor of Georgia, uh, Jeff Duncan. He wrote a book called GOP 2.0, and he's basically trying to drag the Republican Party kicking and screaming back towards the center and away from some of these ideologues like Trump and Cawthorn. And so when I got to talk to him, I asked him, realistically, What is the percentage of Republicans that still want to ride this magic carpet with Donald Trump all the way to the highest heights? And he said, you know, there's a lot of Republicans who are in the closet about this. They can't be public about this. But he estimated that number uh, of 
Trump supporters within the Republican Party to be about 50%. So we won't know the real number until election day, but these are GOP insiders, loyal GOP members in the state of Georgia telling me that um, Trump's influence has waned. We'll have to see if Cawthorn suffers that same fate. I mean, I think Trump's influence may or may not have waned in some parts of the country, but I think if you look in, in North Carolina, nobody with the possible exception of, of Wendy Navarez in the 11th Congressional District is a Republican who's running against Trump, right? If Trump was kryptonite for Republican voters, I think you would see more running against him. So I think what we've got is obviously Madison Cawthorn, Michelle Woodhouse, and Chuck Edwards, to some degree Rod Honeycutt and, and Bruce O'Connell and Wendy Navarez, sort of the front runners, only one of whom is running against Trump. So they're all competing for this Trump vote. In terms of whether it matters for Cawthorn, I'm convinced that the elites in the Republican Party in Western North Carolina aren't so sure about Madison Cawthorn. What I'm not sure about is how much that's translated to average voters, right? You're people who are more concerned with what's about to happen in March Madness than they are the madness that we're going to have in the electoral season. Um, and we just don't know yet. Chris, I think it's interesting that Wendy, uh, as you correctly pointed out, Wendy Navarez has positioned herself as probably the most liberal Republican or moderate Republican. And the rest of the field is uh, pretty much lockstep with the National Party or with the, the kind of Trump movement. Uh, I'm, I'm really curious to see how well she does. Even if she can't win the primary, it'll be a good representative number of Republicans who are abandoning this ideology. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think, too, it's, it's interesting to think what is the ideology that we're talking about here? I mean, I don't think it's traditional conservatism, right? This is definitely something different. It's more bombastic. It's about attacking the establishment. This is not traditional conservatism. It is something else. We've seen some reporting that's come this week mentioning possible discontent with Congressman Carthorn within GOP circles. There was a story in the Washington Examiner, which is a well-known conservative right-wing newspaper, mentions four or five different people in the story saying things about Congressman Cawthorn, one saying his act is growing thin. Only one of the people was named to those four or five people in that story, and then the person who was named was a strategist. Everybody else was an operative. At a story that uh, our friends at WUNC did this week about it, too. Good story, but it has three professors in it, and Bob Orr, a former Republican, talking about it. So, again, how much will we do we really know and how much can we know ahead of the election? Um, because this is something I did want to ask you, Chris. This isn't an area that's going to get polling that's going to be done probably to the level of accuracy that we would expect in polls that we're used to seeing. How are we really going to know going into the election? Yeah, I think we're probably not going to go, going to know. So Madison Cawthorn put out um, what he called a poll. Um, and I, I want folks to take that with more than just a, a shaker of salt. I, I think we just need to ignore these kind of internal polls. There's a, a few reasons for that. One is candidates only release polling, internal polling that looks good for them, right? Why would you ever put out a poll that looks bad? So we don't know if there were five polls that looked very, very different. We also don't know kind of basic levels of disclosure. And this isn't just statistical wonkery, like things like what were the questions that were asked? What were the response options? How long was it? How did we select people? How, do we, how did they decide who was a likely Republican voter? All these questions are very, very much up in the air, and I think they will remain up in the air until we start counting votes. And because of the remoteness of this district, it's unlikely that the you know respected polling organizations or the ones that we would trust are going to do any polling here, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I'm, I would be very surprised if we saw anyone nationally doing polling, primary 
survey polling in general, even when done by well-known organizations, is notoriously difficult. You've got to predict what the electorate is going to look like. And in a district like ours, one, it's rural, it's wide-ranging, we're in multiple media markets cut across multiple states. And then you add to that, there is a whole lot of unaffiliated voters, more than there are the other two parties. What are those folks going to do? Are they going to try to go into the Republican primary? Are they going to move to the Democratic primary? Are they going to stay home at all? I don't really know the answer, and I don't really believe anybody who tells me that they do. One of the interesting things about that internal poll, and you are right, um, take it with a grain of salt, it's commissioned by the campaign. Um, it said that Cawthorn had like 80% favorable ratings, which would be what you would expect to see. What caught my eye was he has a 12% unfavorable rating in that, and that's exceptionally high for a first-term congressman in your own internal poll. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that that lends credibility or accuracy to the poll, but I did find it surprising that in a poll that largely lauds his performance, uh, to see that number of um, folks, 12%, be willing to tell a random stranger on the phone, I do not approve, that may be a sign of something a little bit larger to come. Mm -hmm. Well, we have seven candidates in the Republican primary opposing Congressman Cawthorn. Just two years ago, we had a runoff primary when Linda Bennett was not able to get to 30%. She won the primary, was the top vote getter, not winning it, but top vote getter, and then had to face Madison Cawthorn, who again beat State Senator Jim Davis by only 1,000 votes to come in second, and then he easily won the runoff. So likelihood of a runoff this time around, which would be, again, hate saying the word, unprecedented, I think the chance is 100% of a runoff. If we're betting on the NCAA tournament right now and um, you know putting out lines, I would be willing to bet any listener, anybody here in the studio, uh, there will be a runoff in this race. Yeah. What's the path to it, I guess? What do you mean by path? Well, I, I guess how do we get that? And maybe, Chris, you, you sure. can jump in on this too. But what is the path to seeing how the vote gets so fractured so much that Madison Cawthorn or anyone is not able to get 30% plus one? I mean, I think it's about fracturing the vote. It is the large field working against the favored candidate, which is exactly what we saw last time with Linda Bennett, right? If Linda Bennett had had a smaller field, I think Linda Bennett would have gotten enough votes. So this is a large field. It's a fractured field. This is a great example of one that is not unprecedented. As you pointed out, we had a primary, excuse me, a second primary or a runoff last time. The first time Mark Meadows ran, he had to go to a second primary or runoff as well. So I think the path is, you know, if the more establishment wing of the party, the more liberal wing of the Republican Party, the anti-Trump wing goes to Navarez. I think if, uh, you know, certainly O'Connell with a million dollars of his own money in could pull a fair number of votes. I think Rod Honeycutt's boots on the ground campaign seems to be making a little bit of noise around the region. And then if the America first wing of the party splits between Woodhouse, Cawthorn, and probably to some degree Edwards, you've got a mess and a mess equals a second primary. I definitely feel like Edwards, though, hasn't really burnished his credentials in the America First movement. He's going to get some support out of that, but I think those main two candidates, like you mentioned, uh, Woodhouse and Cawthorn, will get most of that. I feel like Edwards, uh, he's very clever. Uh, he, you know, he's, he's won elections before. He's positioning himself, I think, just to the left of Cawthorn and Woodhouse, and uh, there is a lane of travel there for him, and I think that's what's going to put him in the runoff one way or the other. He certainly has a lot of establishment Republican support, so maybe this 
face-off between Cawthorn and Woodhouse, which has its own very interesting uh, subtext to it, which, Corey, you can tell us about, um, really comes down to whether or not we're going to have a second primary and a runoff here, is what happens between these two candidacies. So, Corey, you've talked to the Woodhouse campaign and her. What's going on there? This is so interesting. And uh, again, um, using the word unprecedented, this may be the first time I'm aware, and Chris and I talked about this, that there is one candidate running against another candidate who has given that candidate money. Uh, So that's how kind of wonky this is. But Michelle, uh, she was the chair of the NC11 North Carolina Republican Party. And so she'd been out working this district. She was very closely tied to Cawthorn during the primary in 2020 and subsequently. When he announced that he was going to run in a now now defunct district, uh, Michelle jumped into that race with Cawthorn's implicit or explicit support. And then Cawthorn turned around and had to come back because those maps, uh, due to his presumptuous announcement, were thrown out. So that left him with only NC-11 to run it. Michelle Woodhouse is still there. People speculated she would drop out. But as soon as Cawthorn made his announcement, a text message I got from the campaign, it just com- contained one word. That word was undeterred. So we've seen some of her initial statements too. Chris, you, you were talking about that in some of the stories that you've been featured in, her initial statements about Congressman Cawthorn and her staying in the race. Yeah, I mean, look, I was one of many folks in the region who thought this would be an interesting choice for her to make. She made no secret of the fact that she was supporting Madison Cawthorn. She was with Madison Cawthorn on that day in Macon County that became this sort of video heard around the world where he made statements about many sitting members of Congress and made some statements about uh, January 6th. And And Madison Cawthorn gave her money, I believe, on two separate occasions, including before he had even left the district and before she'd even declared to be a candidate. Again, this word unprecedented keeps coming back at us like a boomerang, unfortunately. Um, But what she's done since he came back is to double down, is to say, no, I'm here. I think she has called him, if I remember correctly, the Instagram failed promises candidate. So it's pretty clear. She's saying she's the adult America first candidate. It's a Washington Instagram broken promises politician. There we go. Isn't this just a microcosm of the Trump movement right now? And Corey, you talked to Congressman Cawthorn a bit back about how he viewed it as becoming decentralized, that it's not just about the former president now. Isn't this a good microcosm of it, these two candidates? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think at the time Cawthorn told me, um, you can't just cut the head off the snake. It's an interesting analogy, but he says, uh, you cut the head off the snake and it's going to be reborn as a thousand snakes, but those snakes are going to be lions. That was his actual quote. And uh, there is something to that. Um, If we removed Trump from the equation, the America First movement will persist. It's just how influential is it without its leader or its figurehead? That is, again, what we're what we're going to have to see in the November elections, because if Trump is not holding his party's feet to the fire and doesn't have that influence, uh, the America First movement's going to shrivel up and fade away. You're listening to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. We'll be back after this short break. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to The Porch, a production of the BPR News Team. I'm Matt Bush talking with Corey Valancourt, Smoky Mountain News politics editor and BPR contributor and political scientist Dr. Chris Cooper of Western Carolina University. We spent the last segment talking about the congressional race. There's a whole lot else on the ballot here that is hyper-local, too, and that's what we love to delve into at Blue Ridge Public Radio. So let's look at some of these General Assembly seats that are coming up. We have a lot of people retiring, particularly in Buncombe County, where the entire health delegation is not will be new uh, from last year, at least. 
So let's break down some of the races that we're seeing there. Corey, you, um, you're going to cover these for both the Smoky Mountain News and for BPR. What are you seeing in some of these races? Then uh, how is it broken down? One of the interesting things that I see is what is not being seen, and that is a lot of competition in the Western races. So District 120, the far west, Carl Gillespie, a Republican, has no opposition whatsoever. Uh, 119, the seat of Mike Clampett, um, it's Swain, Jackson, and Transylvania. He's got a general election opponent, no primary opponent. 118, no primary. You've got uh, Mark Pless and Josh Remillard in those races. And so it's going to be very quiet in the west here during primary season. And that'll change in November. But then we do have, as you said, some of these Buncombe County races and um, other races, including what I think is the most important race in this region, and that's the 47th Senatorial District. I don't know how Republicans let this happen, but uh, and Chris can talk about this. Chris is going to answer that question, so I'll let you ask him. (laughs) So, Chris, tell me how this happened. Uh, Republicans are drawing these maps, and they happen to draw together two incumbent Republicans who are powerful, well-liked, well-supported in that district, Senator Deanna Ballard and Senator Ralph Heiss. Why? And, and Ralph Heiss was part of the map drawing process to add even even kind of another layer there. And the reason is that in the General Assembly, they are somewhat constrained with how they draw these maps due to this, this kind of wonky thing called the Stevenson clustering rule. And it basically says, hey, they run some kind of math behind the background and say these counties have to hang together because they're adjacent to each other and because of population reasons. So they first do the biggest counties and then they go down in sort of this mathematical formula. And the way it played out is that the clusters ran kind of up the – included western North Carolina and then also ran up the spine of the border of North Carolina. And so – there was really nowhere else to cut that district but Haywood County if you're going to keep it adjacent and you're going to follow the Stevenson clustering rule. And it just so happened that Deanna Ballard and Ralph Heiss happened to both live in this new cluster. If we had the old clusters at play, this wouldn't have happened. But with the new clusters, they just didn't really have a choice. And I agree with you completely. This is perhaps the most interesting primary in the region, and I would add to that perhaps the most interesting primary in the state of North Carolina. The reason it's going to be impactful in splitting Haywood County is, of course, it pulls Canton out of the 50th Senatorial District. That's represented by Kevin Corbin. It probably will be after this. It's 70% Republican. This new district is heavily Republican, but as we remember, last summer there was devastating flooding in eastern Haywood County. Uh, It affected Crusoe. It killed six people there. It also washed out Canton for the second time in two decades. So Mayor Zeb Smathers out there has had his hands full dealing with elected officials at all levels, levels he normally wouldn't have to interact. We've seen Senator Tillis in Canton two or three times. We've seen Speaker Moore there two or three times. The governor was in town with Smathers yesterday talking about flood recovery. And so Senator Kevin Corbin had been a big help in the General Assembly with flood recovery. Now we have to basically train a new senator who's going to be representing Canton at the far western end of their district and let them know what these issues are and what help Haywood County and Canton still need. Corey, I'm so glad you mentioned that because when we talk about redistricting, there's so much emphasis on the partisan makeup, right? Did the D's win or the R's win? Where did the D's win? Where did the R's win? But there's real representational consequences for the movement of district lines. You build relationships with legislators just like you build relationships with a neighbor or a barber 
or a bike shop or anybody else. And so having to rebuild those relationships is going to take time and it is going to have an impact. Like you said, this is no slag at all on anybody who's me representing that area. It's just something they're going to have to learn. And to just give everybody the picture of this, the 47th now is nine counties or parts of nine counties. And that little western part of Haywood or eastern part of Haywood, which is the far western part of the district, which includes Canton, is now in the same Senate district. You're going about an hour east of Appalachian State University in Boone. So it's about a three-hour district. Um, And I think it's important also just to tee you up, Chris, to talk about the importance of state government in the day-to-day lives of people because while a lot of disaster relief funds come from the federal government, the state plays an awful large role, and that's why the governor was here this week, about how things end up going. So not having maybe the, uh, the, the personal relationships and how this goes in a state government, that's pretty important. It's incredibly important, particularly in a state like North Carolina that is a legislature first state. Right? We've had three constitutions in the history of our state. All three of them, they varied in some ways, but one thing they held constant is the legislature is the first branch of government. It's the one that matters. The governor is comparatively less important. So state government, I would argue, affects our lives, generally speaking, more than the federal government does. And the legislature is the most important branch of state government. And just to kind of circle back briefly to our conversation about Congress, I mean, I think it says something that the state government is the most important part of our system. The legislature is the most important part of state government. Yet we've got a baker's dozen people running for Congress. And as Corey pointed out, we've got a number of non-competitive districts in the West. And so I think we really need to reevaluate how we think about importance when it comes to running for office and when it comes to voting and when it comes to paying attention to politics. Paying attention, but I'm going to go on that pay part of it. And that is something you have discussed ever since I've been here, but I think you'd also picked up this week because what was going on in our neighbor to the south about that. So just go over that right now. North Carolina legislators are paid very, very little for what is increasingly becoming almost a full-time job because of how long the the uh, sessions are and we're four hours to six hours away from the state capitol yeah. that play into the fact we have so few people running uh for the state legislature absolutely it has something to do with the fact that we have so few people running it also has something to do with the fact that at least west of Asheville, it's all men running we know that the farther you get from the state capitol, this has effects on the gender of people or the sex of people who choose to run for office for a variety of reasons. We know that professionalism, which is this idea of salary, session length, and staffing, matters more the farther you get from the state capitol. So in North Carolina, we pay our state legislators $13,951 a year, so shy of $14,000 a year. It is increasingly a full-time job, and I do not think it's a coincidence at all that the entire Buncombe County delegation, save one member, is changing. And I think it's partially changing because this is a hard job if you live in Wake County and you can go home and get a turkey sandwich. It's really hard if you're five hours away from home and you have to, in Brian Turner's case anyway, bring your bed with you on the back of a trailer. So Georgia um, has passed out of the state Senate, but not the state House. So it's not law. It's still a bill, but something that would try to help. So they pay their legislators about $15,000 a year. And so this new bill, if it becomes law, will peg their salary at two-thirds the cost of living. So you're certainly not going to become rich, 
be difficult to make it a full-time job, but it would make the pay about $35,000 a year. So the idea is they can perhaps attract better people or more importantly, different types of people to run. And we hear about this from our representatives here. Senator Kevin Corbin lives in Franklin. I can't imagine how long it takes him to get to Raleigh. He consistently tells me he lives closer to three or four state capitals uh, that aren't the capital of his state. You've got Atlanta. You've got Knoxville. Am I missing one, Chris? Uh, Columbia? uh, Yeah, Columbia, um, Atlanta. Uh, Nashville is right on the nose. Um, Lexington, Kentucky is, I think, about the same distance as well. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. Maybe another way that this shows up is the amount of people running for local offices this year on the ballot. And there are a lot going, in particular, for two types of seats. So, Corey, take us through that because these are some things you're going to be covering. What are people really fired up to run for in 2022? So, Lily Knepp and I are uh, BPR's regional reporter. We've discussed this at length, and we're going to be producing some content on this. Uh, The sheriff's races here are very important, and we've got a number of them. I think last cycle, there were about 40 new sheriffs. I think this cycle, there will be more, especially in Western North Carolina. We've got a lot of retirements for a lot of reasons. Haywood County Sheriff uh, Greg Christopher, Jackson County Sheriff Chip Hall, uh, Macon County Sheriff Robbie Holland, they're all not seeking reelection. So a lot of people don't understand or forget that this is an elected office. They think the sheriff just holds the keys to the jail. That's not exactly true. They're political figures. They issue endorsements. Um, They also advocate for change in the General Assembly, particularly in reference to the opioid crisis. They've also been increasingly called upon to issue opinions on what sorts of crimes they would prosecute or um, what sort of rights that they think they need to safeguard. So when we saw the Second Amendment sanctuary movement sweep through this state right at the beginning of the pandemic, you had citizens showing up asking sheriffs to say, we will not enforce any gun law that we believe is unconstitutional. Well, it's laughable because these sheriffs do not have the authority to interpret the law. They're there to enforce the laws that the General Assembly and the United States Congress presents them with. Nevertheless, you had many sheriffs, uh, a majority of sheriffs in North Carolina, I believe, saying, I won't enforce gun laws that I think are unconstitutional. So the role of sheriff is much more than just serving papers and locking up the cells at night. And as we look at this turnover, we're losing institutional experience from these folks and wondering what kind of sheriffs we're going to have for the next decade or so. I think these are incredibly important offices, and there's been a lot more attention put on them in the last few years. And this is around Western North Carolina, whether you're talking about, um, you know, I think, Haywood County, Jackson County, Buncombe County, Swain County, uh, or excuse me, I believe Graham County has a number of folks running. Wake County to our east has 10 people running for sheriff. So I think it's, you know, again, I'm, I'm sometimes worried we've got so many people running for federal office. It appears this time a lot of folks running for local office, and then this just kind of hole in the middle when it comes to state government. And I think for those of us who are concerned about representation and good governance, it's maybe not a good thing. District attorneys also, uh, I think speaking to some of what you're talking about, Corey, district attorneys also an elected office. Different how it's done here in North Carolina. Some places have their own district attorney. Other places are grouped together. In Buncombe County, Todd Williams is running for re-election, but he has three opponents in the Democratic primary. So there's another office that's seeing a lot of people running. I don't remember that being that many uh, people running for district attorney against an incumbent before either in Buncombe County. So how much do we attribute just to the national conversation about the criminal justice system to a renewed interest or a renewed vigor, or maybe just a new vigor, because maybe it's not renewed with all these 
those people running, of people looking to run for these particular offices. Yeah, I think if 2020 taught us anything, it's that uh, people are now energized and feel like they can make a change in some of these local races. I mean, look at school boards. Uh, The Republican Party very deftly has targeted those races because they're they're the lowest hanging fruit for someone that wants to um, uh, gain election to an office. And the issues there are terribly complex. The funding streams are federal, state, and local. Everything is emotional because it involves children. And now we have this debate over critical race theory, which is not taught in our schools, and these so-called woke ideologies uh, that parents feel like are being shoved down their kids' throats. Now, is that accurate? I don't know. However, these parents certainly think it is, and so school board meetings have suddenly become the biggest form of entertainment in many of our western counties. It's the nationalization of local politics, Chris. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I was just going to say, this is the nationalization of local politics. It's the same issues, right? I mean, if you think about the, uh, the Virginia governor's race, critical race theory, you know, whatever folks may think that concept or those words even mean, right, that phrase was all over that race. Nationally, Donald Trump talks about critical race theory, and the local school boards are also talking about critical race theory. Again, putting aside for a second whether they're using the term correctly whether they're describing the same thing or not, it is a phrase that is used. And so, yes, we are seeing people run for local offices around the Trump name. We're certainly seeing that in Jackson County. One of the folks running for for Board of Commissioners is, uh, you know, flying the Trump flag literally and figuratively quite high. And so the difference, the kind of bleed over between state or excuse me, between local and national office is uh, it's bleeding over much more than it has before. So a larger question I'll ask you, and I'll give you time to think about it, but what happens when local politics become nationalized? What do we end up missing? Because a region like this has its own unique challenges, opportunities, issues that it must face because of the mountains. A lot of it is really comes down to our geography and topography. What happens? What do we miss when that happens, when the local politics become nationalized and they're the things you hear on cable news channels? They're here's things you hear on talk shows. What are we missing when that ends up happening? And we're not talking about the things that are local to our region. What I've seen is you get candidates or elected officials talking about issues that don't pertain to them. You know, you go to a county commission forum and someone says, well, how do you feel about abortion? I mean, these people have nothing to do with that issue whatsoever. Same with guns to a large extent. Your county commissioners, your town aldermen, uh, how do you feel about guns? Who cares? That's something that you hear about and see on Fox News all the time and OAN and Newsmax and some of these networks. But it has nothing to do with local politics. There are local issues that are important and are real. Abortion and guns are not those issues. But they're the sexiest issues, and they are the issues that people are flooded with in mainstream media. And so, of course, when you're running for school board, you want to go out there and fly the Trump flag or fly the Joe Biden flag and talk about these issues to the detriment of actual issues that really affect people's daily lives. Yeah, I think you're missing responsiveness, right? I mean, when people are entering into these local races with a set of issues, whether it's critical race theory or whether it's masking or, as you said, in some of these abortion or guns, they lose the ability to be responsive to changes in the environment and to what people are trying to tell them locally, right? There's a reason we have local governments. It's because they are supposed to be different. They are supposed to be responsive. They're supposed to be laboratories of democracy, right, where we can try things out and we can say, hey, this works really well in Graham County, and that's different than Buncombe County, and that is okay. And this bleed over sort of takes what is good and effective about local government and 
completely takes it off the table and pretends that it's all the same when the reality is it is not Buncombe County, is not Graham County, is not Wake County, is not Mecklenburg County. We have local government for a reason. So as we're winding up the this segment, winding up this episode of The Porch, there are some other things we didn't get to today or won't be able to get to through in depth. But one thing I do want to talk about, we have talked about redistricting ad nauseum prior to this now being decided, at least for this election. But we're going to have to talk about it again next year, Chris. So explain to us why we have to go through this all over again. That's right. So I'll tell you the good news first. I find that works better. Um, I believe we will be able to hold our state legislative or general assembly lines at least for a little while. Now, there may be a lawsuit. Something may happen. But that one, we at least have the expectation that we can hold on to those lines. So if you're really concerned about the state center districts, the state house districts, they'll probably hold pretty constant. I cannot make the same uh, hopeful promise to you about our congressional districts. So it turns out you are allowed to redraw congressional districts in the middle of the 10-year cycle, in the middle of the census cycle. And there is a potential that our state Supreme Court could change party hands. It's barely held by the Democrats right now, and the Republicans have been very upfront saying, hey, we want to take over the state Supreme Court. Well, they probably should. That's what parties do. They want to win elections. But the result of all that together could be that the state Supreme Court flips hands The Republican Party thinks they have a chance to redraw the maps and will have a friendlier court that they will face in Raleigh. Now, I do have a couple of questions about this. I mean, this assumes that Republican judiciary will always side with the Republican Party. And I think we just saw a three-judge panel that included two Republicans and one Democrat that decided to go with a special master map. So this is not a guarantee but it is certainly the strategy that I think we're likely to see play out. Final two questions. Corey, first, you and Lily Kinnup will be spearheading our election coverage at BPR and Smoky Mountain News. So what are you guys going to be doing for the next two months? Uh, I was going to say, gosh, Matt, I thought you were going to tell me what we're going to be doing um, because we really don't know. No, um, we're going to be all over Western North Carolina. Again, the far west races are going to be fairly quiet, but we are going to be talking about things in Buncombe County and in the city of Asheville. You know, there's a big um, city council race as well. I believe nine candidates for three seats. We're also focusing on that Supreme Court court race because, as Chris said, it is vitally important. Um, Four three Democratic court right now. Um, will they redraw these maps like Republicans wanted with a ten four or eleven three congressional delegation? The current maps that we have right now, I think, are seven six with one toss up maybe. So they're very very close. Much more representative of the state and how the state votes. Let's not forget Donald Trump won this state last time by one point six points. That doesn't exactly scream red state to me, even though we live in a red region. And that fits into what my last question will be. And Chris, you said this after the 2020 election, the dust had settled. It was for all the millions of dollars that were spent. Yeah. Nothing changed. Are we likely to see any change this year or will North Carolina still be running to stand still? I think that's, you said that very well. I think we're going to look about the same. We are a purple state, as Corey just said. We were, yes, we voted for Donald Trump last time, but of every state Donald Trump won, his margin was the smallest in North Carolina of any of them. 
Georgia is just on the other side of that line. I feel like the national news made such a big deal about Georgia turning blue, but the reality is Georgia and North Carolina are almost identical in terms of voting patterns. And we know that voting patterns don't shift very much. So I do not think we're going to see anything radically different. Last time we have the exact same partisan makeup of our uh, Council of State. We have, you know, because of redistricting, some changes in Congress, but otherwise not. Voting patterns were similar. I think we're going to see some something different this time, which is not to say that these races aren't important, which isn't to say that people shouldn't pay attention and participate. They should. These local races are critical, as we've talked about. Sometimes upsets happen, right? Doug Flutie did complete that pass, remember correctly. So pay attention. But no, I would not expect to see radical change. Chris Cooper, Corey Valancourt, and me, Matt Bush, Talking Politics. And that does it for this episode of The Porch, and that does it for me as well. This is the last time I'll be hosting the program, as I am leaving Blue Ridge Public Radio at the end of the month, after five and a half years. Five and a half years that have felt alternately like five and a half minutes and five and a half decades. But this place will never leave me because of what we got to do here. And that's thanks to listeners who demanded more local news coverage with depth, context, and heart, and then backed up their demands with financial support. To ensure that this is part of VPR's future, keep doing it. Be the public in public radio. Demand it and financially support this station to back that up. Go to BPR.org right now. We're in our spring membership drive, and there are lots of ways and levels to give, and it only takes a few minutes. Thank you. To our team, Lily Kinnett, Corey Valancourt, Matt Pikin, Helen Chickering, Megan Kane, Mike Martinez, Anastasia Marie, Cass Harrington, Chris Cooper, Darren Waters, Marcus Harvey, John Mountshoop, and Marsha Mountshoop, thank you. It takes special kinds of people to do what we do, and you're those people. You inspire me every day, and I can't be the only one. Keep going. Someone else will be here to greet you on the porch next time. Until then, stay safe.